0: Hello and a very warm welcome to a brand new episode of The Gold Podcast with me, Helena Beer, the editor of Gold. Now, I know I say this every week, but we've got a fantastic interview on the podcast today. I really enjoyed listening to the conversation between Gold's assistant editor, Isabel O'Brien, and Samin Saeed, who is the UK Chief Scientific Officer and Medical Director at Novartis UK. The pair talk about a whole host of medical affairs-related issues, including the transition from medicine to pharma, cross-functionality, commercial versus medical affairs, and lots more besides, including a fascinating discussion about leadership, company culture, and getting young women into health and pharma, so do stick around for that. But first, we'll take a look at some news from the past week or so in News You Might Have Missed. Snapshot update of the gender pay gap in European life sciences has been published by the Healthcare Business Women's Association and it's encouraging news to an extent. Produced in collaboration with global professional services firm Aon, the update shows the sector's median based gender pay gap narrowed between 2020 and 2021 from 13.1% down to 12.2%. The HBA did, however, note that there was more volatility on a country-by-country basis, with the likes of France, Germany, Switzerland and the UK seeing an increase in the base salary gap during this period. In the coming weeks, the two organisations will be publishing a detailed analysis of gender pay across the European life sciences sector this year. This will incorporate an update of the gender pay gap and firms will be invited to participate in bespoke gender pay equality studies to identify how to address specific pay equity situations and their root causes. We'll be covering this in gold as it's published, so do keep an eye out. Another story from the last week saw Novartis investing $300 million to bolster its development and manufacturing of next-generation biotherapeutics. This multi-year investment will span both drug substance and product development, and it is hoped that this will strengthen the company's early-stage biotherapeutics portfolio. Novartis is planning to spend $110 million to increase clinical manufacturing operations at its facility in Slovenia and another $60 million to expand capacity at its site in Austria. There's also an additional plan to establish a biologics hub at its campus in Switzerland. So, lots of exciting developments and potential there. Next up, it's time for this week's interview. And as I mentioned, we're talking to Samin Saeed, who is the UK Chief Scientific Officer and Medical Director at Novartis UK. Samin studied medicine at King's College London and practiced medicine for around five years, undertaking basic surgical training before studying for a diploma in pharmaceutical medicine and transitioning to pharma and the world of medical affairs. She started out in the industry as medical affairs manager and worked her way up to her current role. She's worked at several pharma companies over the last 15 years such as Merck, GSK and as I said now Novartis as well as in Medical Affairs Consultancy. Her knowledge of the function is impressive to say the least and this conversation with Isabel really digs deep into that. There are lots of handy takeaways for everyone too. So I'll pass over to Isabel so we can have a listen.
1: So, Smeen, welcome to the Gold podcast. It is fantastic to actually have you in the studio with me today. Thanks for battling the elements outside and getting in. How mm-hmm. are you doing? I'm great,
2: thanks. Yeah, it's quite nice to drive into London for a change and see a different point of view,
1: different scenery. Well, it's brilliant to have you here. So we're going to have a conversation today about a number of things, uh, primarily medical affairs, because obviously that is where your focus is. Mm-hmm. But the way we like to start all these podcasts is kind of going back to the beginning, back to the start. And the start for you was medicine. Yeah. Um, so I'm quite intrigued. Why did you decide to train as a doctor?
2: Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, and it's going to probably sound very naff, but I, from a young age, actually, I was always driven by this idea of wanting to help people and obviously you're influenced by the people around you and what you see on the television so i thought oh being a doctor just looks amazing you get to treat people you get any to make any particular show oh casualty <laughs> <laughs> now gone is casualty the one that's just gone I, well, I don't watch it anymore, obviously. Oh, it was it, back it in the day. We are talking quite a while okay, back. Yeah. So, And also, you know, we had family visits to our GP and stuff. And, you know, there was ill health, let's say, in the family. So it just felt like the sort of area that, you know, it just appealed to me. And um, then I guess just through school, that was just my single focus goal was to get into medical school. And mm. so I tried to do everything I could to get in. And, uh, yeah, um, and I, I think that that purpose, the... The sense of really trying to help people is something that stays with me today, whatever role I'm in, mm. um, whether it be colleagues, whether it be people in my family and friends. Um, but obviously, the industry we're in, you, you hope that the work that you're doing is also having an impact on, on patients as well.
1: hundred percent. So you sort of touched on there that obviously, how long were you in medicine for?
2: So after I graduated, I practiced for about four or five years. I was a trainee surgeon. I was doing my basic surgical mm-hmm. training. And um, during that time, um, my mum sadly fell ill and she, I, took, I had to take time out of my training to look after her. And Unfortunately, she passed away. And I think coming back into mm-hmm. medicine, it was a, difficult time and going back into the NHS, you know, it's a it's a tough environment to work in. Um and there are various other things going on with with the training at the time. And it just it just got me sort of thinking and reflecting a bit more about what other options there might be. Um, one thing was very clear I didn't want to move out of healthcare. Right. Um, and so I guess that's where my flirtation initially started with pharmaceuticals <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> flirtation now you know a career spanning 15 years very solid
1: career exactly so you joined pharma It still fitted in that healthcare space but as you said was a little bit different Hmm. why medical affairs in particular
2: Well, I think at the time uh, when I joined pharma, the place where doctors and um, pharmacists or people with a scientific background naturally gravitated towards was medical affairs. Mm -hmm. When I first joined pharma, I didn't really know very much about it. Um, I'd gone via recruitment agents, I'd spoken to some friends in the industry. And from their point of view, you know, medics are really well sought after in the, in the industry. Um, and obviously there are different roles that medics can have throughout the life cycle of, of, a, of a medicine. Um, but in the UK, I guess it was just the first job I, I found or I was recruited for and, and so, and thus began the journey. So it was really more by chance, I guess, rather than me actively pursuing a career in medical affairs because truthfully I just wanted a role where my medical qualification was, um, useful and ben- beneficial to
1: wherever I was going. And how did you find the transition? Because I've had a lot of sort of former physicians that have moved into the industry, going from healthcare to a more business-like environment. Was that somewhere you immediately felt comfortable? Or? Oh, no.
2: <laughs> it's really, I mean, look, you know, I think some people, admit perhaps these days, I would say that physicians moving into industry are much more savvy and aware of what, what it entails. But back in the day, there weren't really that many... Um, physicians, I would say, in the industry, Great. not 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 certainly in my circle, um, and yeah, it was it was an adjustment and trying to understand marketing speak and business speak and corporate mm. speak, and also mm. how you then use your medical training to translate whatever it is that we're trying to do for a medicine into that into that language, mm. um, and we'll come on to you know why therefore medical people are, uh, are you know are sought after. But clearly, one of the things they valued was the fact that I was able to have conversations with um, doctors and healthcare professionals on a clinical level. Um, But yeah, it it wasn't easy at all. And and I think when you go into medicine, most people go into medicine because they have this deep desire to just really make a difference. Um, And you're making a difference, you know, to that patient that you're treating or, or, you know, the the people that you're working with. Um, So then when you come into a commercial environment where... The talk is about growth and sales, and it does sit, sit a little bit uncomfortably. Mm. But actually, if you break it down, and actually, what you realise is what they're talking about is the number of patients they can reach with the medicine that can help them. Sales is a way to measure that, and, and obviously, people mm. get obsessed with sales numbers. But ultimately, everyone in that company is trying to get a medicine that works into the patients it can benefit, Absolutely. and that's the way I've, you know, over over the time I try to explain it. So. <laughs> it allows you to then understand how your medical background can really help translate into the
1: commercial side of things. Well, you need that ecosystem in place fundamentally to make impact at scale. Yeah. If you're a doctor, it's one-on-one, it's immediate, but exactly. you can't do that in a pharma company. You need all these different moving parts, I imagine, to make it work. Absolutely. So let's really dig into medical affairs now. Um I want to talk to you about purpose and value Mm -hmm. um, of medical affairs. So how would you define the purpose of medical? So this is a
2: really tricky one. And you've probably seen that I've, you know, I I comment quite a bit on this area. Um, I I do think medical affairs is difficult to define. And I think if you're not in pharma, people don't always understand what it means. Um, And when I talk about when I think about the purpose, well, I feel that the purpose for any pharma company is is the same, whatever function you're in. And that is to get that innovation or the medicine into as many people as possible to the right people, get them to the right people as possible as quickly as possible. And And I don't think that's different for people in medical affairs. And I think the purpose or the, you know, the, um, the value that medical affairs provides in a company is the fact that you are employing or recruiting, um, people with deep scientific and clinical experience, backgrounds, um, and they are then able to translate whatever, you know, the data that we have on the the molecule, the R&D, the real-world evidence, the clinical environment, and their role really is, the value they bring is the ability to sort of translate that and make sense of it and and ensure that the company is able to um, use that to find... um, you know commercial opportunities which ultimately to me means um, getting the medicine to people as, as quickly as possible mm. um, I'm not sure if I've explained that no you have, you have you <laughs> have
1: um, why is it why is it so important that everyone in an organization understands that purpose and that value that medical affairs is bringing
2: Yeah, I think it's a good question Um, and I think over the years certainly I've observed some evolution in this space. Um, When I talk about the time I first joined, very much so medical was seen as there to um, sign off materials, provide the medical accuracy, particularly in the in the very commercial side of things. You know, obviously there's roles in drug safety and, and clinical development, but if you're w- working alongside your marketing and market access colleagues, um, the role was very much seen as there to provide the medical information essentially, mm-hmm. and also to do some clinical external engagement. But I think over the over time, you know, when you're recruiting people with these backgrounds, you know, you want them to be able to do a, a bit more than just sign off materials um and do do the you know do the um quality checking and actually over the years i have seen this evolve further and i've seen medical affairs departments get stronger and have more of a voice and actually partnering much more with the commercial we're not we're all commercial but partnering much more with the marketing side of the business the market access side of the business really thinking about actually if we're going to launch this medicine you know, what needs to happen in the clinical environment? How do we shape it? How do we engage with the healthcare system? How do we engage with the players? And I think that's probably because over the years, medicines have also become quite a lot more complex. We've mm. got more complex platforms entering into the arena. I think, you know, the unmet needs are getting much more um, complex and um, patient identification is 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 quite key from a payer perspective. So I think the environment itself is getting complex which requires, therefore, the medical affairs group to step up and not mm. just be seen as there to check if a claim or whatever is, is accurate. It's actually we need to hold hands as a cross-functional team and figure out how we get this very that's complicated medicine into mm. a complicated disease area mm. um, or with patients that you can't readily identify. How do we do that? And I think that's that's the beauty of, of what medical affairs can bring to the commercialization of a medicine.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I went to a conference over the summer, and they were talking a lot about the role of the MSL and how much that is going to grow. And there was a lot of talk about MSL sales reps is one going to be more important than the other. Most people I've spoken to have sort of said it's not necessarily about which is more important, but MSLs certainly are going to be more involved, and Mm -hmm. they're going to need to know more, and they're going to be more impactful because these therapies are getting that much more complicated, like you said. You touched on you said something really interesting there as well that we're all commercial which i totally get i totally understand but i don't actually think i've heard someone frame it like that before and my next question for you was what can medical affairs learn from commercial and vice versa
0: yeah so i i yeah i do say that
2: and i'm, I'm sure there's lots of people now kind of you know twitching <laughs> a little bit, but i just feel that we are working you know in commercial enterprises Mm. Even if you're the scientist that's discovering a a target and has to, you know, working with the clinical development team to put a program in place, and then you've got the safety team defining the uh, parameters of safety and compliance team. Ultimately, we are all there to ensure that the medicine reaches as many patients as possible, the right patients, um, within the confines of our regulatory environment. So we're still all ultimately, I mean, if, if the company wasn't making money then mm. we wouldn't have jobs and I know that sounds really you know
1: no I but it, it, is it's the the truth. Fact. it is the truth <laughs> it's just and the truth it is the truth and I think I wrote an article recently about farmers reputation yeah. and something really interesting came out of it that the public have an issue with the profits that farmer make but yeah. they don't have a a level that they deem as appropriate they don't really have a scale for what would be mm. a good amount of profits so there's just this kind of lack of understanding. I think.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, I've I've reflected on this a lot because, you know, clearly you're right. You know, if you're profiting from ill health, it doesn't always sit right. But actually, you know, at the same time, the amazing innovations that get brought to people with unmet needs happen because there is a huge amount of investment and risk that needs mm. to be taken. And, you know, currently there's no other framework or system in place. We are working in a, you know, shareholder driven global society um but actually because of that you know we can take risks we can invest in new targets and new pathways and there's still huge um you know the the number of diseases that you hear about which are heartbreaking there's nothing that could be done you know this is where innovation and risks and and discovery and investment need to be plowed into Mm -hmm. to um to invest in these areas. And you know, unfortunately that means making a profit so that you can so do that. Confusion. That I, that sounds really, and I, and I hope people don't see this as a sort of mercenary game, but ultimately, you know, if you think about some of the, the the medicines that have actually made a huge amount of difference to people over the last few years, you know, even with HIV, for example, mm um you know where we where we were to where we are now um some of the oncology drugs that we have, which are really kind of game changing for people mm. um uh you know new platforms that are being developed like the CART-Ts and the other gene editing type um mm. uh programs in place gene therapies, all this sort of stuff it you know it's it, it it's not easy um but the world is not just pharma the world is is set up in this way, and that's just how how things are done. Unless someone wants to come along and set up a not-for-profit pharma company, I was going to say it's going to be an,
1: an entire restructure of everything, <laughs> kind of as you say. Yeah, no, completely. I, yeah, I think that's a really good point, well made, and I think people in the industry probably understand that. But it is like we were saying that that public, that lay public perception, can sometimes mm. be a bit confused. Yeah, and
2: I can understand it, right? Because you know, it's economies are tough and given the current um, way the world is at the moment and you know that these medicines are much needed so I guess there's always a question mark as to is there another way Um, so I get I get that
1: Um, but at the moment there isn't (laughs) yeah that's just my opinion. So staying on this topic of commercial and medical for a second something I'm really interested by is soft skills and the importance of soft skills. And I think they're really important in the medical role and in the sales rep role. We're talking MSLs and sales reps. But sales reps are often much more prepared for these interactions with customers than MSLs are. Is that something you would agree with?
2: Um, Yeah, so I think it depends which company you're in. And I would say that my experience has been that perhaps um, the medical field function hasn't had as much input in terms of how they interact I think it's assumed because somebody has a clinical scientific or academic background that they can have those conversations with the external um, community and actually obviously their role is to ensure that they can have those credible scientific conversations but I think if you are looking to blend that ability to have clinical scientific credible conversations with you know, the commercial acumen, then yes, soft skills are critical because you need to be able to teach field teams or coach them in, in how they interact, what it is that they're trying to get out of that interaction. Um, so, you know, they're not there to sell, but they are certainly there to, to get insights or to influence mm. um, someone's thought process or to educate or to kind of have some sort of debate on, on the science. Um, and that's something at Novartis, um, you know, the last couple of years, Our brilliant field medical excellence um, head has been implementing, you know, with the team. So we've we've put in some of those sort of coaching sessions and um, strategic sessions, just so that the the field teams can get the most out of their interactions. But you're right. I mean, in other companies, it it was just sort of expected. Oh, you know, you're an MSL off off your pop, whereas the sales teams would be given much more of a learning and development type package mm. and soft skills training. So I do think this is, you know, for the future. And I think the way to look at pharma as well is not just about different roles, so a sales team or an MSL or medical affairs. It's, it's ultimately about what is it that you're trying to achieve? Who is it you're trying to reach? what What is it you're trying to reach them with? Throughout the life cycle of a medicine, pre-launch, peri-launch, you know, even when it, with a mature medicine, you've got, to un, you've got to really define what are the jobs to be done and then look at actually how best to deploy the people you have in your company to to do those jobs. And I think that's the way pharma is moving. It needs to move and it, it should be, I'm not saying function agnostic, but I think let's just stop getting hung up about an MSL and a sales rep and this, that, and the other. I think it is about actually what is it that we need we're trying to do? Who is mm-hmm. it we're trying to educate? Who we're trying to reach uh, and how do we do that? How best do we do that? And who are the right people to do that? Um and I think this is where soft skill training therefore is
1: applicable to anyone that is working in that environment 100 percent. sort of having that goal in mind and exactly. then formulating the team to travel towards that goal exactly that yeah i completely agree i i i heard something incredibly funny at a conference which i'm just trying to to a lot of conferences of. isabel <laughs> yeah i do i do we went to many many this summer we've heard the expression of salespeople turn up and throw up i believe the equivalent in the msl space could be the data dump yeah so it's about constructing that data in a way that's really meaningful i know yeah data is so true it's not me it's a man called marcus west who said it Um, but yeah i think that kind of really sums up what you're saying exactly it isn't just a data
2: dump no no but that's you know it can happen right so yeah yeah, no i fully agree this is why I'm, i'm really passionate about the fact that medical affairs is really about how we translate you know using people with that scientific clinical acumen And making sure that they're able to translate that into into the clinical environment to Mm. to ensure that we can influence, shape, engage, all of those things. And it's, you know, it's not working in isolation, it's working with the other within the cross-functional team.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So moving away slightly from medical affairs and back on to you and the industry itself. um, we write a lot about in gold diversity within pharma diversity within clinical trials obviously is a really important pocket mm. but I kind of want to talk more about diversity within organizations because if you have diverse thought diverse backgrounds within a within a company I think ultimately you are going to get better outcomes is that something you agree with I do
2: actually um I think what you need in a room is it's we need to move away from this idea of diversity being just diversity in terms of gender ethnicity sexuality whatever I think, actually what you want the reason that you talk about those types of diversities because everyone's lived experience is different and what you're trying to bring into the room is people's experiences and ideas and what you said earlier diversity of thought and i think if we end up having people who are not particularly diverse sitting around a room then i think I, I'm not sure the creativity is there, and I think the decision decision making and and will people actually challenge each other and bring fresh perspectives into the room. And I think this is why it's important to have diversity. I think you know I'm really keen and passionate about building diverse teams so that we can debate, we can have open challenge, you know, create that safe space. But let's let's all kind of disagree with each other and 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 agree with each other as well, if 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 if, if that may be the case. But it is absolutely about bringing different, fresh experiences different lived experiences into the room
1: um
2: and how you do that it's you know i guess um it's not always easy but i think this is part of when you're recruiting or selecting people i like i like different characters and i always try to think about actually how are people going to interact with each other and what am i missing in my team have i got someone that's a straight talker have i got someone that's going to be a Mm. bit more of a thinker and sit back and observe so i'm much more passionate about bringing that type of mix into the room.
1: Are you quite active in that space then when it comes to choosing your teams you're quite involved would you do personality tests you know they can do all these things are you a star are you a lord (laughs) would you go that granular with it? Um, I haven't
2: done I think I like to have a a panel of people um, and you know when we're talking I like to also get to know the um, applicants I try to have a sort of informal one-to-one with them just to kind of get mm. to know what they're about, what drives them. And then obviously a more formal panel discussion. But I, I think, you know, even in the panel, I like to make sure I've got a, a diverse mm. selection panel, because again, there might be different perspectives that, that come out from that interview. Um, but I know I, I haven't really sort of tested whether someone's a psychopath or not using personality <laughs> tests. I mean, that I would be know. great to know. Yeah. Someone starts <laughs> Are you a psychopath? You? No. <laughs> yeah.
1: Notoriously hard to work that one out. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I suppose when it all wrapped up in this diversity, I know you're very keen on getting women into pharma, mm. young women. Are you seeing a greater influx of young women wanting to work in health, perhaps after the pandemic?
2: So I think if you look at the stats for medical school, mm. I mean, you know, you are seeing more and more women. I think, I can't remember the latest stats, but I think... Maybe I should been, say pharma. Yeah, health. pharma. Yeah. So in, in healthcare, I think there's a lot of women. I think in pharma, I would probably say... Um, you are seeing equal numbers of men and women coming in, coming in. Um, but yeah, I think as you start to look up the levels, you do see a slight difference in, in kind of gender bias, I guess. Um, and I'm sure that happens for all sorts of reasons. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I myself have had to take time out to have children.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I know, you know, these days, you can have a parental leave, which means that the father can also take time, which I think is brilliant. Mm. I think it does even the, the, the playing field, but actually, you know, at the time when I was taking time out, you know, you can see people and peers who chose not to have children or who, you know, couldn't have children biologically. Mm, <laughs> like, mm. you know, you, you watch their careers and you think, Oh, you know, I've got to now I've got a child to look after. And I kind of want to balance my life with my uh, work and and all this. So you do sort of see how that can happen. Mm. Um, but actually, what I try to tell women who are in that position or anyone in that position, if it, even if it's, you know, a father that wants to spend time with their child is, you know what, you, you don't have that time forever. Mm. Um, and you're, as long as you are still doing things that are relevant to your career, you're, when the time comes for you to accelerate and move forward, it, it will happen. Um, and that's what I found for myself when it comes to kind of senior leadership, I'm not really sure why you're not seeing um, more equal representation. Mm. Um, I'm sure there've been studies on, on different reasons, and it might be females not putting themselves forward for things or feeling like they have to be hundred percent competent before they go for jobs. Yeah. You know, those are the sort of standard reasons that you hear being cited. Mm. Um,
1: is that, an, is that something that's ever affected you in your career? um
2: truthfully probably but I don't I never I don't know how much of that is me as a person versus me as a female yeah, and, uh, yeah. so um you know and there have been times where I've had other people push me forwards for things because I've been a bit you know unsure and uh, am I ready for this
3: mm.
2: and actually just that nudge has been enough to help help me get you know in the, in the job that I'm currently in and so for me now whenever I see someone kind of teetering and being a bit unsure of themselves I feel like my role now is to kind of give them that nudge and Mm. to say look it'll be fine it'll be okay lean in Mm. and you know quoting the Sheryl Sandberg book (laughs) you know if you don't lean in you don't know and you might manage it a a lot better than you think you you don't don't ask you don't get don't ask you don't
1: get Yeah. yeah well that actually leads me on very nicely to my final question actually and it's about you as a leader and kind of how everything in your career up until this point has kind of formulated the leader you want to be like, how, how would you hope your teams look at you or describe you? Oh God, you should probably (laughs) ask them
2: (laughs) how, so, I mean, in the last couple of years I've been fortunate enough to work with a great leadership team at the, um, you know, country leadership level, very, again, very diverse in terms of personality and I'd hope that they would describe me as someone who was a team player, um, you know, contributes, engaged in in what the business needs were, and um, but also fun to work with. Mm. Um, and then I would hope that the team that I I lead, my, my direct report team would see me as someone that was empowering, um, gave people the freedom to lead themselves, um, but also supportive in their own leadership journeys, um, and I think the other key, the other key thing as a, as a leader is being able to set that kind of clear vision and direction so that people mm. understand exactly where it is that we're all trying to aim towards. Um, so hopefully they'll think that I did that pretty well. Um, but yeah, I think you've got to enjoy your work as well and you've got to enjoy working with the teams you're in. So hopefully we built a good fun culture
1: as well. Have you ever been given a real nugget about leadership that you've always kind of kept with you? throughout those sort of decision making times etc
2: yeah actually and again it's going to sound very cheesy and naff but I you know I was just saying this to my other half just the other day actually I think it pays to be vulnerable sometimes in fact often you know if you're struggling with something you know just because you're a leader doesn't mean that you're going to have all the answers there are it's perfectly okay to say do you know what I don't quite know how to tackle this I need you to help me um and I think that's, that's one of the things that has really helped me as a leader, because it means that I get that support from the teams that I'm working in. Um, it means that I, I can get other people's views and opinions mm. and it's not just, you know, it's not, you know, when you're stuck, it always pays to get other people to help get you unstuck. Mm. It's a two way street. You're not stuck at the top, looking down. Exactly. With no one to help you. Exactly.
1: Samin, I have loved chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I hope you've had a good time as well. Thank you. It's been great.
0: I love that Samin was inspired to become a doctor through watching Casualty. It's the longest running primetime medical drama series in the world. And I do wonder how many UK doctors were inspired by it. It must be a fair few. I also really liked Isabel and Samine's discussion about farmer profits off the back of the industry's bad boy reputation. It's a touchy subject, but an interesting one. And this is something Gold looked at in detail in the latest issue of the magazine. It's one of my favourite cover features for a while. So do head to the Gold website and check that out. We'll leave a link for you in the show notes. And speaking of recent content, parental leave was also something Samine touched on. And just last week, we published an exclusive article from the Healthcare Business Women's Association on this very topic. Again, we'll leave a link in the show notes. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much to Samin for joining us and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on the next episode coming to you next Tuesday. Until then, it's goodbye from me.